two specific things. He says, number one, so that we as Christians will be able to lead a quiet and tranquil life, meaning that we need to pray that the government does not persecute Christians. We're very blessed because there's a lot of countries right now where people are in prison or being killed. So we need to pray that God will put in office and continue to protect Christians. But then secondly, he says, so that we may live quiet lives in godliness and dignity. We need to pray for the church in America because the point is not, Lord, keep us safe so we can just be comfortable. It's keep us safe so we can be conformed to the image of Christ and advance the gospel in America. And I think you've heard me say this often. Tozer was right. The reason there aren't more Christians in America is because of Christians in America. So as God revives the church and, and the Spirit of God works deeply in our churches, and as we pray for our country, we can expect that the, the Lord will be very gracious. He's very merciful, but he does that through prayer. So let's take a moment and just pray before we start looking at the word. Father, as we just sang, behold our God. If we, if we actually beheld you in all of your glory, you told us in the Bible we would be consumed. So many of us have such a poor or skewed image of God. And we thank you that the Bible helps to correct that and to reveal, us, reveal to us who you truly are. You are a God who takes no pleasure in sin. You are a God who is angry with the wicked every day. You are a God who is a consuming fire. In you is no darkness at all. But yet, Father, we, we thank you with all of our hearts that you are also a God who's full of mercy. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your compassion towards us. We thank you that you chose not to obliterate us, but instead you sent your son into the world because you loved us and because you wanted us to be saved. And oh, Father, we tremble to think of what it will be like at Judgment Day for all those who have rejected the gift of Christ. But thank you that this morning we can rejoice that you opened our eyes and brought many of us to the knowledge of the truth so that we could become believers, born again, blood-washed children of God, and Father, you are forming the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit for your glory. And Lord, all over this country, Christians are gathering. And we pray that they will be encouraged, that there would be holiness in the churches, that there would be a deep sense of the presence of Jesus when we gather together. For Jesus told us that where two or three gather in his name, he's in their midst. And we invite the presence of Jesus to fill this room in the power of the Holy Spirit, may he become more real to us. May we love him and tremble, worship and adore and exalt him today. As we open your word, may the Holy Spirit fill us. May the Holy Spirit feed us. And we pray for those in our midst who have not yet come to know Christ, that you would draw them, draw them by this miraculous moving of the Spirit, this mysterious movement like wind. We do not know where it comes or where it goes, but we pray that the Spirit will move in our midst and people will be awakened. And we pray for our country, Father, as we look back at the history of America. We believe that it was founded on many 
Christian principles, many biblical um, ideas that have shaped and framed America. But Lord, we, we see America plunging away from you at a rapid rate. And we pray, God, for mercy. We confess our own sins, the sins of the church and the sins of our country. And we pray that you will not destroy America, that you will not allow this country to collapse, not because we're great, not because we deserve it, not because of anything in us, but because of your mercy and because many in this world identify America with Christianity. And we do not want your name and the reputation of Jesus to be, to be soiled. We do not want you to be looked at as a mockery. So we pray that you would put into office people who will not persecute Christianity, people who will advance righteousness. And Lord, we know this country is a mess, and we cry out to you for mercy and pray that we will pray for the church often and, and passionately. So bless our fellowship and our time together as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 2. If you're visiting with us, I want to welcome you and let you know we have plenty of extra Bibles. If you don't have one, many go to churches where they just don't read the Bible, or maybe you just never read the Bible before. So please feel free to take a Bible. I want to put out something. I think you've heard me say this enough. The idea here is we're all reading John together, okay? That's, that's, that's the idea, okay, in theory. So if if you're here this morning, we're trying to do a chapter at a time. So today we're going to be chapter 2, next week chapter 3. So just by way of survey, this is not for guilt or anything like this. I'm just curious, how many of you have read John chapter 2 in preparation for this morning? Just raise your hand. Okay, thank you both. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what, I, what I really pray that you will do is, is read the chapter ahead for next week and ask yourself questions, Right? Come with questions. Come, come with a study Bible and maybe looking up and saying, why did Jesus say you must be born again? What did he mean Moses lifted up the serpent? Even this morning, if you came and you read, you might say, hey, why did Jesus cleanse the temple? This looks like the beginning of his ministry, but he cleansed it at the end of his ministry. Or why did he turn water into wine? Or, or what does it mean that it says they believed in Jesus, but he didn't entrust himself to them? So the goal here is not that the talking head tells you everything about the Bible, but that the Bible becomes something that you're reading and thinking about and applying to your life. So when, when God was telling us how to, to gather in the assembled church, he said in 1 Timothy 4 to Timothy, he said, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. So as we read the scriptures together, and I explain them and exhort and teach, we know that it's, it's got to come in the power of the Holy Spirit. So be in prayer because God's drawing unbelievers to himself and prayer that we as a church will hear and receive the things that God has for us. So this morning we're going to look at John chapter 2, and I want to remind you that the first four chapters of the Gospel of John are very warm and positive. Jesus is receiving a wonderful reception. Remember in John 1 it says, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. So in 1 through 4 we see many people receiving him, 5 through 12, lots of opposition. So last week we saw how he called his disciples and they received him. And we saw that Jesus is the anointed divine Messiah who dispenses the spirit. And that because of that, he can, he can take us like Peter and say, this is who you are, but this is who you're going to be because of what I can do in your life. 
And we learn from Nathaniel as Jesus ended this chapter that he's the ladder, he's the only way to God. And he says to Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than these. And that's what's going to happen right away. He's going to see something that's going to blow his mind. But one of the things that D.A. Carson pointed out, I thought this was interesting. He says, almost all of the miracles and the discussions in John 2, 3, and 4 are basically Jesus' way of saying, times are changing. The old is gone and the new has come. And so he's going he's to talk about when he cleanses the temple. Hey, there's going to be a new way to worship. When he turns water into wine, there's going to be a new way to experience a relationship with God. There's going to be a new birth. We're not going to worry about Jacob's well anymore. We're going to worry about living water. And so let's take a look at this first miracle, water into wine. And as we read through it, then I want to explain and, and point out some things that we can apply to our life. So let's, let's start in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. Now, right from the beginning, John, for some reason in the beginning of this book, is really big on the next day, then the next day, the third day. Several commentaries have, have pointed out that if you take chapters one and two together, it comes out to seven days, the days of completion. And whether or not John intended that, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about. But the bigger picture here is Cana was not far from Nazareth, and so this is likely either a friend of Jesus. Many suggest it might even be a relative of Jesus. And remember that weddings back then were very different from ours. It's enough for us to pay for one wedding reception. Wedding receptions back then lasted a week, and the hosts were expected to feed the guests for a week, and they would stay. And, and so you talk about having to plan housing and food and the supplies. It was enormous. And so, and then, of course, I'm sure when Jesus got his invitation and it said, you know, how many will you bring? He tweets, um, 12. Um, <laughs> and they're like, wow, we better, we better do that. So <clears throat> in verse 3, it says, when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, that might not seem like a big deal, the wine gave out, but I read in at least three different commentaries that to run out of wine was incredibly, incredibly terrible for several reasons. Number one, they're a shame-based culture. So if you run out of wine, you're pretty much going to be so embarrassed and stigmatized the rest of your life. But one of the things that was even more shocking was that it was possible for the parents of the, the, the spouse to sue you for that. I'm like, wow, man, talk about aggressive, litigious cultures. So this running out of wine was enormous. Now, we don't know exactly how Mary ran out or, or how Mary found out about this. Some commentary suggested that from archaeological evidence, the men would eat in a banquet room, the women ate in a different location, and so somehow in between... Mary came, came to the room where the men were eating, and maybe she met Jesus right outside on the steps, and she pulls him aside and says to him, they have no wine. Like, Jesus, they're out of wine. Now, did she anticipate here that he was going to do a miracle? I don't think so. Jesus, up to this point, had never done a miracle, so this wasn't just like a normal thing. Like, Jesus, we're out of bread. Can you just make some here so I don't have to... All she's doing is she's, she's learned to depend on Jesus. Most commentaries suggest that Joseph has been 
deceased for some time now. Jesus, the oldest son, is sort of the the breadwinner in the family and and the one that she had just learned to depend on. But Jesus' response to Mary is is rather unusual. He says in verse 4, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, the first thing that strikes us is who would say to their mother, woman, right? I can only say this, guys. If you say that to your wife, you need to wise up, okay? (laughs) In our culture, that's considered disrespectful, okay? So we have to understand, in that culture, this was different. This is not disrespectful. In fact, this is the same phrase that Jesus used on the cross when he said, woman, behold your son. But the real issue here is when Jesus says, what do I have to do with you? Literally, in in the original language, it just means, what to you and to me? What to you and to me? And, and, And Bible teachers over the years have tried to figure out, what in the world does that mean? Because it's used on a number of occasions. In fact, this exact same phrase is used when demons encounter Jesus. What to you and to me? So... It's, it's hard to, to come to any absolute conclusions, but somehow what Jesus is doing here, it looks like is putting some distance between him and his mother. That, that somehow he, even his very mother has to understand that now that I'm beginning my messianic ministry, our relationship has to change, and there's no shortcut or fast track with me. Jesus doesn't have any sort of special people that kind of can come in the side. And so he's sort of distancing himself from his mother. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, John throws that out there. And this is why I want you to read ahead. If for no other reason, as you're reading through John, notice every time Jesus talks about his hour. Because eventually when we get to the middle of the book, he says, now my hour has come. And you're like, well, what is that hour that he's talking about? Well, Mary not to be dissuaded by this gentle distancing of himself, says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, I want to just pause for a moment, particularly because in the Roman Catholic tradition, they hold Mary in very high veneration. And I think that's a positive thing. Mary was indeed the chosen woman to be the vessel of the Messiah. She, She indeed was the mother of God. But we need to be careful to balance that, to understand that she's not the mediatrix between God and man. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that only Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. And frankly, what I think is is helpful for us to understand is to see that even Mary herself said this, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, you and I would do well to tattoo that phrase to our soul, right? It's not what does Pastor Tom say to you? What does Father O'Malley say to you? What does Rabbi so-and-so to you? Whatever Jesus says to you, and he doesn't say things to you in contradicting to the Bible, the way you'll find out what he says to you is right here in this book. So when Jesus says in the next chapter, truly I say to you, unless you're born again, you're not going to be in the kingdom of God. Come hell or high water, whatever the Methobacterians or the atheists say, Jesus says you need to be born again. And I I hope that you are committed to saying, I'm attaching myself to Jesus, like one of those little fish on the belly of a shark. Where he goes, I'm going. What he says, that settles it. So she says, whatever he says to you, do it. She figures 
My son will come out with something. Verse 6. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Now, a couple things to think about. The, the Old Testament law required certain purifications, certain ceremonial washings. Priests had to wash themselves in, in special water that had not become unclean. And so a stone water pot was considered symbolic because it wouldn't even be contaminated by clay. And, and so, so these water pots, in addition to being there literally, sort of, sort of symbolize the old guard. This is the way we do things under the Mosaic law. Now, you, you do the math, you go, that's like 120 gallons. Now, we sense that these pots were either empty or partially empty because Jesus says, go fill them up. Now, is there some symbolism there that, that John goes, these aren't just, he doesn't just say, hey, there was a bunch of jugs there, but, but he goes, these are Jewish ceremonial pots for purification. So Jesus says, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. Now, again, going from being empty to full to the brim. So they bring it to the head waiter, which would sort of been back then the master of ceremonies. And verse 9, very interesting, he, he tastes the water, now notice what John says, which had become wine. So somewhere in that moment, the water became wine. And he didn't know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the head waiter called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, now what are we to make of this? I mean, that's just a social custom. You, you, you wait till when it says, literally, when men have become drunk. Now, now, is Jesus advocating drunkenness? Absolutely not. But please, when people say the wine back then was non-alcoholic, I just, I, I, I don't think we need to defend God. The, the wine back then had alcohol in it. They, they, they cut it with water, but still had alcohol in it. Otherwise, Ephesians 5.18 would not say, do not be drunk with wine. If it was just grape juice, it'd be silly. Do not be drunk with, with grape juice. So there were degrees of, of alcohol. Sometimes they cut it with two-thirds water. If they didn't cut it with water, it was considered strong drink. The Bible's very clear. Drunkenness is a sin. The Bible says no drunkard will inherit the kingdom of God. If you have a, a problem getting drunk on alcohol, you need to repent of that. It's more than a disease. It's a sin, just like any other sins. And God can strengthen, heal, and enable you to, to be transformed and give you power. And we need to pray for all those in our church who are struggling with substance abuse, not just alcohol, but we're all trying to overcome sin. But notice how John ends this with a, a brief comment. He says, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. A couple comments. When it says this beginning of his signs, remember at the end of the book, John says, Jesus did many signs, but I picked these so that you might believe. So when John puts this out, he says, all right, here's number one. But secondly, when he says he manifested his glory, what exactly does that mean? 
Remember back in John chapter 1, it says, Jesus, who's the word, he became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And then John says, and we beheld his glory. What does that mean, that we beheld his glory? Well, we get a hint of this later in the book. When Jesus prays in John 17, he says, Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world was. So when Jesus was up in heaven before he came to earth, it was bedazzling, spectacular, wondrous glory, bright and beaming Shekinah glory flowing out from him, receiving all the worship of the angels, so much so that when we see the Lord Jesus, the Bible tells us that we'll, we'll marvel at him when he displays his glory. But in this great act of humility, when he decided to come to earth, Theologians say he veiled his glory. He covered over it. It was as though when he took on his humanity, inside of him was the fullness of bright and pulsating deity. It was there all the time, but in his humility, he didn't display it on a regular basis. Kind of like E.T., if he wanted his finger to glow, so sometimes he would pull people aside and say, watch this, on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the Bible says he became brighter than the sun and they fell to the ground. So there's a couple things for us to think about. Why would Jesus manifest his glory? Why would he allow people to see little glimpses of, wow, he's more than just gentle Jesus, meek and mild. What just happened? Why would he do that? Why has the church over the history of Christianity began to, to recognize and celebrate that. Even the great Christmas hymn that says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, this little baby, the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. So what you to think about this. Here's Jesus on the earth. And most people have no clue. He's just another fella. In fact, he wasn't even good looking. The Bible says he had no former comeliness that we should desire him. But at his pleasure, he would reveal his glory. And you go, would he do that for me? And the answer is, yeah. If you're a believer, he already did. And you go, when? Here's how Paul explained it in, in, in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, if the gospel of Christ is veiled, if you don't get it that Jesus died on the cross to be your Lord and Savior. It's veiled because the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds. And then he says this, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But the day that you became a believer, Paul says, the same God who caused light to shine out of darkness, he caused the light of the gospel to shine into our hearts. And if you're saved today, it's not because you suddenly had this great epiphany that you're smarter than others, but it's because Jesus was well pleased to reveal his glory to you and to continue to reveal that glory to you. He's not done yet. He's just beginning to do that, and that's why when we study and we look at Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and we're being transformed into his image by that same glory from glory to glory. And so I want to suggest to you when, when, when the, the, the man says to Jesus, you've kept the good wine until last. You've saved the best of the last. That's what God did. In the Old Testament, all of these sacrifices and ceremonies and priests 
and rituals were all pointing to the rich full time when we would come to know Christ. It's interesting in the Old Testament, the Old Testament predicted that the time of God's blessing, the future time, was often illustrated by the use of wine. In fact, the book of Proverbs says God has given us wine to make men's heart glad, not drunk. But joy and celebration were associated with wine. In fact, the scripture says in Amos, we saw in chapter 9, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. And so for Jesus to do this as his first miracle, he's saying to us, now that I've come, the fullness has come. That's why you and I can have an abundant life. The Bible says God spoke many times in the past to the fathers in many portions and ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. You know what? It is a privilege to be living on this side of the cross. Yeah, people got saved back then, and they loved God, and I'm going to sit down with Abraham, and you're going to sit down with David. But Jesus said, many prophets and, and, and kings long to see what you see. We're on the other side of the cross, and we already get to taste of the sweet wine of the new life of the kingdom of God that Jesus has begun. But the, the cool thing about this is, if you have any joy in your life through Christ, you're just getting a taste. That's just a sip. You ever, you ever have this happen at communion? When you take a sip of that grape juice and you go, man, that makes me really hungry for more. I, 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 I thirst for more of that, you know? And sometimes I'm like, stop thinking about that. Think about Jesus. Don't. So, so in many ways, being a Christian is a taste of this new wine in Christ. We, we begin to, 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 to partake of the sweet wine of Jesus. But I can assure you, that's just a sip. When he returns, he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in the kingdom of God. Our joy will be so incredibly full, we won't even know how to express it. So praise God, Jesus saved the best for last. Now, let's look at the next miracle or the next encounter. It says, after this, he went down to Capernaum. Now, down, if you're looking at a map, is northwest, and you're going, don't they know you don't go down when you're going north? It's all about elevation, okay? Nazareth, Cana were higher in elevation. Much like today, I didn't know this, but people anywhere in England say, we're going to go, let me get this right, down or up. I think they say up to London, but probably not because I think London's on the border. But anyway, same idea. It's not about north or south. It's about elevation. So Jesus, though he was, was born in Nazareth, he set up his headquarters in Capernaum. And if you had a map, you'd see that Capernaum was this little village right on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And many of his, his uh, teachings and miracles took place here. It says he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brother and his disciples, and they stayed a few days. But then it says, and the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, what just took me five seconds to read took Jesus 60 miles to walk, okay? Capernaum was about 60 miles from Jerusalem. So sometimes when you read these little phrases, oh, then he went to Capernaum, then he went back to Jerusalem. Like, stop and think about this. But those of you who are familiar with the Passover know that this is, was perhaps the most important festival of the Jewish people. It was the annual celebration of the fact that God had brought them out of Egypt. And remember, the reason it's called the Passover is because God said, I'm going to kill the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. And there's only one way that you can avoid that. 
You need to take a pure lamb, and on the 10th day of the month, you need to sacrifice that lamb, and you need to take the blood, and you need to put it on the doorpost and on the two lintels. And then God says, as I'm passing through in judgment, if I see the blood, I will pass over you. And what a wonderful picture. What was God doing? He was showing us the future of Christ. Because it was Christ, Paul says, who was our Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us. And so as Jesus is going down to observe the Passover, he's also beginning to set in motion the idea that things are going to come to completion. Better things are going to happen. Now look at verse 14. It says, he found in the temple those who were selling oxen, sheep, doves, and the money changers seated. Now, on the one hand, what these men were doing was not wrong in and of itself, okay? They were providing a service to God's people. According to um, historians, a million people swelled into Jerusalem during the Passover. A million people, right? Because all of the Jews and God-fearers from all over the world would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But God required that when you got there, two things. One, you had to pay the annual shekel, which was a silver coin, and then you also had to offer a sacrifice. Well, who's going to carry a lamb if they're traveling from Greece? And so rather than bring your animals with you, the people of God in that area had set up a service to help by selling them sacrificial animals, and because you couldn't just say, hey, can I exchange my euros here in the temple? You had to come with this certain coin, and so they had money changers. Now, what we learned from history that originally these services, these, these places to assist worshipers, were not right in the temple. They were out in the Valley Kidron. They were over sort of like the Garden of Gethsemane, right? So originally they had a good idea, you know, let's help God's people. But somehow, somebody had a brilliant idea. Hey, let's move them right into the temple area. Now, again, this is where you can begin to study. You can go online and say, give me a picture of what the temple looked like back then. And you'll find that the temple of God, this beautiful, beautiful building that Herod had built, had an outer court on the outside called the Court of the Gentiles. Because Gentiles weren't allowed to have that same access to God. And apparently, according to most uh, commentaries, these, these <coughs> merchants had set up all of their, their, their stores right in the court of the Gentiles. So the, the Gentiles who, who were being invited to come and pray, right, they're coming through the clamor of cattle and, and noise and money. It was almost like dissing them and saying, sorry, you're not welcome here. We're using your space. What's interesting in the book of Isaiah is this, that Isaiah predicted that my father's house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. And so I think Jesus was incensed on many levels here. And so he sees this, and, and in addition, we know that these men were no longer doing a service, but they had exorbitantly jacked up the price. So they were robbing these poor people who could barely afford a turtle dove. And instead of giving them a good exchange rate, they, had, they, they were making big money off of it. This is why in the other Gospels, Jesus said, you've made this place a den of thieves, you robbers. But notice, this sort of 
causes you to go, hey, I always pictured Jesus like Mr. Rogers. Bless you, bless you. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? And we, and we even see pictures of him, this little meek and mild, pale little fellow, you know, wouldn't disturb a fly. He was a little spider, go free, right? And then you go, wow, I, I probably need to rethink Jesus. Because it says, he made a scourge of cords. He drove them all out. A scourge was like a, a multi-corded uh, whip. He drove them out with sheep oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. Now that sort of makes me rethink Jesus, right? I would invite you to try that in Atlantic City sometime. You start flipping the blackjack table over, pouring out the money and saying, stop this, right? I would suggest that it would not go well for you. And you might say, well, yeah, that's because nowadays we have guns. Trust me, they had temple police. They had plenty of people who would take down a hooligan or a petty nut who went insane. They would take him down immediately. But nobody dared lay a hand on Jesus. Jesus had the authority to speak a word and stop men in their tracks. In John chapter 18, the Bible tells us that they came to arrest Jesus, 600 of them. And they said, who? he says, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus. He said, I am he. And all 600 of them fell to the ground. So it's a reminder that Jesus is good, but he's not safe. He's not just a little milky white genie in the sky, but he's Lord of all. And he's worthy of our worship. But notice is that as he does this, verse 17 says, his disciples remembered that it was written Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, one of the things commentators suggest is, and I, I agree with that, they didn't remember it right then. They didn't go, oh, wow, hey, check this out. I know why he's doing that. That's like the psalm that said zeal for the house. I think there was time for them to reflect, and I'm going to come back to them in just a moment. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us that you do these things? Now, one of the things that is, is kind of interesting is that John says Jesus did these signs so that they would get saved. But whenever people came up to Jesus and said, give us a sign on demand, that wasn't going to happen. He was no genie to, to, to hop at, at their invitations. And so even though signs were designed to draw people to Christ, it was on his terms. So when they say, how dare you do these things? <clears throat> what authority do you have to do this? Jesus did something very interesting. He said, all right, I'll give you a sign, but you're going to have to work with me. I'll do this on one condition. See this temple right here? Beautiful temple. Took 46 years to build. He said, destroy it. Just rip it down. Get started. You know, get your sledgehammers. Just tear it to the ground. And then I'll give you a sign. In three days, I'll raise it up again. And of course, what a, what a clever and wise, you didn't want to get into an argument with Jesus. You were going to lose every time, right? So Jesus is fine. You, you want a sign? Destroy this temple. I'll give you the sign. I'll raise it back up in three days. Now, of course, because of their, their dull and hardened minds, right, they're thinking purely on a human level. And Jesus had a way of doing this all the time. He says, hey, give me a drink. I'll give you living water. What are you talking about? Nicodemus, you must be born again. If I tell you earthly things and you don't get it, how are you going to understand spiritual things? 
So Jesus often put things on a, on, a, on a second level, and here he did that, for it says he was speaking of the temple of his body. And they didn't get it right away. It says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture. Well, what scripture? The scriptures that predicted that Jesus would rise from the dead, and the word which Jesus had spoken. I want to take a moment to remind you something about the Christian life, that the Christian life is an ongoing experience in which Jesus is constantly teaching, training, reminding, reframing our thinking. He's very patient. And so as you think about your own walk with Christ, sometimes we, we get to places and we're like, Lord, what's going on? I don't understand. I, I, thought we had this, I thought we had an understanding or this isn't what I anticipated. We'll see this theme in the Gospel of John is that we need to stay in touch with Jesus, understanding that often the things that happen now won't make sense to a little bit further down the road. Perhaps the most pressing example of this is when he washed the disciples' feet. Peter says to him, Lord, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus says, well, then you might as well get your coat because if I don't wash your feet, you don't have anything to do with me. But then he said this. He said, Peter, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but you'll understand later. Could that be true for some of you this morning? That you're going, Lord, my world is upside down. I have no idea what's going on here. Why are you doing this? And Jesus says, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but you'll understand later. You see, they didn't have a clue what was going on when he says this, but it says later they remembered. And one of the things that they remembered was that this is what the scripture said. Have you ever thought about this? I think about this all the time. How, when trouble comes into my life, how quickly I panic, how quickly I, I fear, how quickly I freak out on the inside, and I forget these precious promises of Scripture. We could use some prayer right now, folks, in our family, but God reminded me this morning, oh, didn't I promise you in Philippians 4, 6, and 7? I didn't hear this voice, but... but doesn't Philippians 4, 6, and 7 say, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God which passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds. And so one of the things I want to encourage you to do is to reflect on your life in prayer as you're reading the scriptures, because it's the scriptures that shape the way we view things. It's the scriptures that transform us. True, lasting Christian change is not external. It's gospel-oriented internal change as we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so don't beat yourself down and go, I'm a total failure, God can't use me. Picture Jesus walking gently beside you saying, oh, you of little faith, will you not trust me? Haven't we been over this? And he patiently continues to reveal himself to us. But then John closes with a really, really interesting couple verses at the end. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. And you're like, that's awesome. This is too cool. Who knows what other miracles Jesus did? Matter of fact, 
he blew Nicodemus' mind, right? Nicodemus comes to him in John chapter 3, and he says, Rabbi, you've got to be from God, because nobody can do the signs you're doing unless God is with him. So we don't know all the things that, we've only got these miracles that are recorded. Who knows what else Jesus did? But the place was going crazy with excitement. Look at that one. Did you see that? Did you hear what he did? And everybody's like, Jesus, Jesus. Many believed in his name. Revival. Souls being converted. Uh, eh. For the first time, John's going to introduce to us the concept of what many have called false faith, spurious faith, ingenuine faith, not real, not lasting, non-conversion faith. You see, it's possible for a person to, in a shallow level, say, I believe in their head without truly believing and trusting with their heart. And so, so Jesus didn't get all excited about people raising their hand and going, yes, I believe. Jesus said later in John chapter 8, if you continue in my word, then you're true disciples of mine. So what Jesus did is he has this ability to see what's inside of us. So, so notice what it says. Many believed in his name, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men. And he didn't need anyone to bear witness concerning man. For he himself knew what was in man. Now notice that phrase. He knew all men. He knows what's in... Wait, then that means he knows what you're thinking this morning. He knows whether you're a true follower or not. He knows whether you have one foot in the world. He knows if you're a contrite and broken sinner who's, who's trying to find rest in him, he'll come and meet you. But he has this amazing capacity to, to lay us wide open before him and say, I know you. But I, but I want to show you something that I found really cool. It says, many believed in his name, but when it says he was not entrusting himself to them, that's the same Greek word for believe. You're like, wait. So, so you're saying I could translate this, Many believed in him, but he didn't believe them. He didn't believe himself. Yeah, it's the same word. It's just put in the passive form. And I think that's a really good illustration of what it means to believe, right? What does it mean to entrust yourself to someone? See, to become a Christian does not mean to just go, yeah, I believe Jesus died on the cross and rose again. I don't believe in Santa Claus, and I believe in Jesus, Right? That's just an intellectual acknowledgement of a fact. To trust Christ means to entrust yourself to him. This is why we use terms like give your life to Christ. You throw yourself upon the mercies of Christ and say, I don't care what I was told. You have to be good. You have to do good works to get to heaven. I don't believe that anymore. I believe what the Bible says, that Christ died for my sins and I'm saved by grace through faith. And I'm casting myself on Jesus. I'm going, Jesus, if, if, if I'm going to go to heaven, it's going to be because you're going to take me there. Could somebody say amen? amen? Paul says, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he will keep what I have entrusted to him. And I urge you this morning, if you've never done this, grab yourself by the neck and carry yourself to Jesus and say, Lord, here I am. Take me. 
in entrusting myself to you, I ask you to forgive me my sins. And I ask that you will come into my life. And I put my trust in you. And that's a big difference between going, yeah, I raised my hand one time at Backyard Bible Club. This morning, I ask you, have you ever entrusted yourself to Christ and said, Lord, here I am. Forgive me. I receive you as a gift. Maybe I didn't understand it before, but now I understand it. As Jeremy showed us a while back, I got to get in the wheelbarrow. You say, well, I think I've done that. Well, guess what? What does that imply about people who really do that? You give yourself to Christ, and what does he do? He gives himself to you. That's awesome. He didn't not entrust himself to them because he didn't like them. He didn't entrust himself to them because they didn't truly trust him. Because he knew that in three and a half years, they would be going, crucify him. Palm Sunday, yay! A week later, kill him. But if you in your heart, you know that you're a sinner in need of a savior, and you're trusting in Jesus, you don't need to be afraid anymore. You don't need to be scared of God's wrath. Jesus has trusted himself to you. And now you and him are like this. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. And he will comfort you. He will keep you. He will guide till the day is done. He will hear your every prayer. He will give you wisdom and strength. He will fight for you while you keep silent. If Christ be for you, who can be against you? Who will ever lay a charge against you since you're hidden in God's Son? What do you have to fear? Loneliness, depression, sickness. I don't have enough money. The book of Hebrews says, let your way of life be free from covetousness because Jesus himself said, I will never leave you. Can I tell you this morning, Christian, the reason that you and I can have an abundant life is because we have Jesus. Because in his mercy and grace, he has pledged himself to us, to little insignificant us. You might say, but I'm not worthy. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I won't cast him out. Take courage, Christians. Jesus has set his seal upon you. You're his. And he will keep you to the end. And ask him this week to give you peace. Ask him this week to pour out some of the, the wine of the joy of the Lord in your heart. Ask him this week to, to meet your needs. But I can assure you this, that wherever you are, wherever you go, you can be close to God because Christ is with you. And so I want to close by inviting any of you who have not come to Christ. He knows. Don't play games. He knows. And he loves you. And he says, come. And if that's all you get it, you say, Lord, I don't know exactly what that means, but I believe that you died and rose again, that you want to be my Savior. I come the best I know how. I urge you to do that this morning. And you'll be born again, and Christ will entrust himself to you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your words. Thank you so much for meeting us this morning. Thank you that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. I pray that you would now bless each precious person here today. And if anyone needs to receive Christ, I pray that they will do that or talk to someone before they leave. Thank you, Lord, for how great you are. In Jesus' name, amen.
God bless you. Be sure to read chapter 3 for next Sunday.